Shalom, everyone. This is Luke Tanner from Zion Hebraic Congregation. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoy my dad's message from the book of Amos. Feel free to check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. There you'll find um, links to our social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as blog posts that my dad, Warren, has written. There's a lot up there, really good stuff. Feel free to go there and check it out. And that's it for today. I hope you enjoy the message. Thank you. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does All right, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Amos chapter 1, and we're going to read chapter 1 in through chapter 2 and verse 8. So if you would turn to chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 1 through verse two, chapter 2. Okay. All right, we there? All right, so let's start reading says, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Aven, and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into captivity, unto Ker, saith the Lord. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Eden, but I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. And I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, and him that holdeth a scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because they delivered up the whole captivity to Eden, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. 
because he did pursue his brother with a sword and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four, <clears throat> I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they may enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces of their, thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Chapter 2. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kirioth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the Torah of the Lord, and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to Air after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Please come back next week for my other's wonderful sermon, Amos would say. So, you know, we're, like I said, we're, we're in... We're in the, uh, what is commonly called in uh, the minor prophets, merely because of the size of the books. But as I've been trying to indicate, are we still working? Uh, as I've been trying to indicate, um, uh, oh, these books to me, since coming into the Hebraic mindset and just kind of looking at everything as a collective whole, I've, I've come to appreciate the prophetic end-time aspect of these books. In other words, what I'm saying is I, I read them in the past, but I, I didn't really look into them. Uh, didn't necessarily say think they were for me or for us or whatever. So, but... Pause for a second. Pause? Okay, go ahead. Am I starting all over or just going no, from No, just here? continue. Okay, so... It, it's with, with an eye towards... Okay, what what was going on in the past, what was going, that they refer to lots of times in these books, what's going on in the present, and what is, what's being alluded to in the future. So, you know, in this book of Amos, there's, there's being made to the past, references made to their presence, 
references, as I, uh, Amos talks, to the near future and to the distant future. So it's, 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 as we said before, every book of the Bible is for every generation of God's people. That's why God put it there. Um, I'm sure there was more he could have put in. If he didn't think something was relevant, he would have left it out. So every book of the Bible, every passage in the Bible, is for every generation. It's relevant. So just because this was written back when it was written doesn't mean it's no longer relevant for us now. It is exciting, you know, to start seeing these books through a prophetic uh, lens and, and through a prophetic landscape. So what I want to do today is just look at primarily verses 1, 2, and 3 of, of chapter 1, and then uh, uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. And I'm going to try to give a little backdrop here to get us in, into where we're going with this. And so I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction, and then my points are the setting, the sound, S-O-N-D, the sin. So the setting, verse 1, the sound, verse 2, the sin, verse 3, and then the solution, 2, 4. And, and I've put this under the title of the Lord will roar. <clears throat> that's, that's what really got my attention, because I've read this now a couple times through this past week, but you know, it talks about how, verse 2, the Lord will roar from Zion. <laughs> I just thought that was wonderful. You know, if you try to picture what that, that may actually look like. And then the other thing that I found interesting, too, is so not only is he dealing with the past, present, near future, and distant future, but as we get into his writings here, there seems to be this emphasis on sight and sound. You know, because you have to pitch... Picture the imagery. You have this lion that is roaring. If because if you can just focus on that a minute, we've all seen pictures, we've all seen on TV or you know National Geographic, a lion roaring and and what it looks like. Because there's reference made in a little bit to lion. So God is going to roar from Zion, and, and we'll get into that a little bit here in a minute. All right. So the setting. Um, pretty much from what I can gather is Amos was a breeder, a rancher, and a farmer. And because of the different words that are, that are used, turn to chapter 7 here a minute. And I'm not going to get heavy into this because there's a whole lot of discussion on it, and it's just not really worth our time. But in, in chapter 7, uh, verse 14 then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Whatever that's going to mean, I don't want to get into it. But also in verse 1, it talks about the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. So if, if the best I can come up with as we look at the three different words that are used for Amos, he's a breeder, he's a rancher, and he's a farmer. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to whether he was a man of, of wealth. Did he own all of this business, we'll call it? Or was he a regular guy going to work involved in these things every day? And that's a whole other discussion. I tend to go with this perspective, that Amos was a regular guy from the standpoint of, at least from chapter 7, verse 14, that he never went to seminary. 
he was schooled in life. Because it says, I'm not a prophet, nor a son of a prophet. And, and he's being taunted, basically, in chapter 7 by saying, just go back down to Judah. Make your money there. Just leave us alone and go away. And the implication is, oh, you've come up here to the northern kingdom because this is where you can get good love offerings. Uh, that's really abbreviated in my version of it. But so, so he's, 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 so his answer is, listen, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I'm not in this for profit. <laughs> you can look at this way. You know, I was just following the sheep. God took me one day from following, you know, I was just doing my daily task. I would have loved to have seen how it happened. And God took me from following the animals and, and put me into this ministry. And, uh, if you don't like what I'm preaching, I'm sorry, but God told me to do it. And that's kind of what chapter 7 is going about, because Amaziah is getting all mad at this guy and telling him, please shut up and go home. Goes to the king and says, listen, this guy is just ripping the kingdom apart and he's saying bad things about you. Get him out of here. And so, uh, so I, I think personally that he's a regular guy from the standpoint, he never went to seminary, as I'm just using it that way, meaning so much more so he was just schooled in life. You know, he's a down-and-get-his-hands-dirty guy. And, and, and he wasn't with the elite or the upper class of the religious world. God, for whatever reason, he's saying, just put his hand upon me and took me, and all I can do is tell you what he showed me. And that's what he does, and that's the marvel of these guys. All right, so, um, so that's a little bit of, of what his, his background was, of who he is as I perceive it. You can study yourself and just see the divergences. It's not. It's a landmine I don't want to get into. All right, now, second of all, it, it appears that he, he gave primarily his message at the Bethel Shrine. Um, so he, he was up north. You know, God told him to go up north and, and, and preach up north. And he was contemporary with Hosea. So he's kind of lying uh, in that timeline. So yeah, so he delivered his message, the NLT says, he delivered his message uh, at, at the Bethel Shrine. So, I mean, he's going right into the heart of the enemy's territory. You know, I mean, he's going to right where it's happening, and he's going there. You know, how the, the bravado, the bravery, the chutzpah, whatever you want to call it, to be able to go into the center of, of what they were calling religious worship, but was really pagan idolatry under the name of God. And he goes right there and says... All that God wants them to say. I just love it. I, I just, you know, I admire these guys because of, of uh, who they were and, 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 you know, what they did and what they said in, in, in the face of incredible um, opposition. Now, verse 1, uh, um, it says here, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, so we kind of hit that, which he saw. Now, I'm just such a really simple guy because, you know, when I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know how else to think other than the way I do, but uh, he saw. How do you see words? You know, and I, you know, so then I start thinking, okay, you know, if, if you take out who was among the herdmen of Tekoa and read the words of Amos, which he saw concerning Israel. I don't know if that's significant or not, you know, because it doesn't say which God told him. These are words which he saw. I don't know if you've ever seen like Moses up in the mountain in, in, in the children's version or the animated version, and God comes out with his finger, and he's writing the, 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 the 
uh, words, and they're kind of like, in the one I saw, kind of like suspended in the air. He actually sees God writing. It's kind of like with Belshazzar's feast, where the, the hand appears, and the, the handwriting, meaning, meaning, tekel, euphorison, or whatever, you're waiting the balances and found wanting. You know, this is where my mind goes with this stuff, because I think, wow, I wonder if, if God showed him a visual. You know, if, if I don't know how it works, but anyway, so when I start feeling dumb like that, I, I try to see if any other of these well-known commentators think as childishly as I do. So I found Matthew Henry, and, and it said, I thought something interesting. He, talk, he says, a general character of this prophecy, it consists of the words which the prophet saw. And then he asked the same question that I said, are words to be seen? Yes, God's words are. The apostles speak of the word of life which they had not only heard, but which they had seen with their eyes, which they had looked upon, and which their hands had handled. Such a real substantial thing is the word of God. The prophets saw these words, that is, they were revealed to him in a vision as John is said to see the voice that spoke to him in Revelation. So that which was foretold by them was to him as certain as if he had seen it with his bodily eyes. So I just love that. Are words to be seen? Yes, God's words are. The apostles speak of the word of life. You know, I don't think of those things because he was a word made flesh. He's walking around. He's a word. So he's, he's a written word, but now he's in flesh, and he's a living demonstration on this planet, audibly speaking stuff. Just, I just love this. These letters that God chose to use to speak the universe, which is actually Yeshua, and, and to create everything and give life to everything and sustain it. Those letters that came together as a conglomerate of words at a period of time came to this earth, took on a bodily form, lived out a demonstration, sight and sound. <laughs> this is good. This is good. And so, if, if he saw words, literally or figuratively, we can at least, as Matthew Henry had, had the insight to, to connect it to Yeshua, Jesus. He's the Word. And so, you know, when they're seeing this stuff, they're seeing the Word. I, I don't know. Is this, am I connecting with this? I mean, it's no big deal, but to me, it, I thought it was huge. You know, the words which he saw. You know, and that's where I, I learned from George Mueller to just, George Mueller meditated through the New Testament year after year after year. And at the time of his writing, I think it was 14 years. And he said he would just read it. Sometimes he'd use a whole morning to study in prayer and read the Word of God. He said he'd read it, and he would read sometimes just a word, two words or a phrase. And meditate, turn it over and over in his mind and ponder upon it. And if you've never done it, I don't do it all the time, but sometimes I do, like in this verse, because it's like, it's just a bunch of words. The words of Amos, which he saw among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerned, blah, 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 blah. Well, the words, of, you know, it, and especially when you get in the New Testament, it's just a blast to do that, to break it down and meditate on it all. And so you come up sometimes, and Mueller said you know, he got more out of the Word of God by reading it that way than he ever did with commentators or anything else, which I've told you a million times. So 
All right, so he's a herdsman. He's a herdsman from Tekoa, all right? And everything that I've already said without rehashing is still under point one of saying. Now, um, sort of the time frame. So we have these kings that are mentioned here, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam. He's Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So I want to read a little bit from the Bible knowledge commentary here to bring us into the environment, the time, the setting of what was going on so that this hopefully will, will come a little bit to life. So this commentary says, Amos lived in the times of material prosperity. That's important to realize that. The long reigns of Uzziah from 790 to 739 B.C. in Judah and of Jeroboam II, 793 to 753 in Israel, had brought stability, prosperity, and expansion to the two kingdoms. So this is a good time right now. They're not, they're, they're not doom and gloom. They're not living necessarily with a heavy hand drop of, guys, get ready, it's going to hit next week. There's still some time. And, and, and they don't want to hear somebody like Amos with this message because they're living in prosperous times, and, and they're enjoying it. So the southern kingdom had subdued the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east, and the Arab states to the south. Uzziah's political influence was felt as far as Egypt. The northern kingdom to whom Amos's message was directed was at the zenith of its power. Aram had not uh, recovered from her defeat in 802 by Assyria, uh, Assyria uh, un, uh, uh, by the Assyrians. And so, uh, Assyria, however, had been unable to press her advantage. Uh, then it goes a succession of bad rulers for all these other kingdoms. Happen. So because of that, Israel's doing good. So because of the control this gave Israel over the trade routes, wealth began to accumulate in her cities. Commerce thrived, an upper class emerged, and expensive homes were built. The rich enjoyed an indolent, indulgent lifestyle, while the poor became targets for legal and economic exploitation. Slavery for debt was easily accepted, and standards of morality had sunk to a low ebb. Meanwhile, religion flourished. The people thronged to the pagan shrines for the yearly festivals, enthusiastically offering their sacrifices. They steadfastly maintained their God was with them and considered themselves immune from disaster. So for a period of probably no more than a year, Amos gave God's message to the northern kingdom. His ministry was two years before a notable earthquake. Josephus connects the earthquake with the events of 2 Chronicles 26. Archaeological excavations at Hazor and Samaria have uncovered evidence of a violent earthquake in Israel about 760 B.C. So, so this is like, like modern-day America in, in modern-day Christianity, Messianicism, whatever you want to throw in there, just put it all under the moniker of Christianity, no slights intended. But this is, this, the, the scene that Amos is going to is like America and the religious or God's people living in affluence, secure, getting firmly established in, in life, becoming very horizontally focused, losing eternal focus. And the last thing they want to hear, which is what I feel like sometimes, is me once again bringing these messages. 
Everything's fine. Leave me alone. I don't see what you're seeing. I don't read it as you're seeing. Look, Trump is president. The economy's booming. The, 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 the nations around us are trembling. He talked Korea down. Everything is fine. You guys just go away, right? That's Amos. We have to see it that way to make this stuff live. And, and it, it just makes me, we're trying not to say the normal language you do, but it just makes me mad that we're getting fat, dumb, and happy for the slaughter, God's people. Because we, we refuse to see through the eyes of these prophetic prophets. And God, thankfully, loves us enough to come far enough in advance. And that's a problem. It, you know, if you tell somebody or warn somebody or it's three weeks down the road, well, that's just three weeks away. Finally, it's the day before. And ah, panic strikes. Well, God came along and kept trying to say, hey, this is what's coming, guys. So, so that's, that's the introduction for the king. So we had the herdsmen, Amos, and, and what he did, the kings, the time frame. And then it mentions this, this earthquake. This is referenced, go to Zechariah, if you would. This, this uh, earthquake is uh, referenced up here in Zechariah, chapter 14, which, which I find interesting, uh, just for the, fake, uh, 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 for the fact that it's being uh, referenced. So Zechariah 14, and let's see... I'm make sure I got it right. Uh, oh, I don't think I have the right notes. Or do I? Oh. Ah, 14, 4, and 5. Uh, yes, okay, so I'm right. So, and I want, to see the pro I want you to see the prophetic uh, um, overtones that are connected with. So verse 4, Zechariah 14, 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, yea, ye shall flee like, like as ye fled before the earthquakes in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah." Whoa, I love that connection. See, this is what I want you to see, the, the prophetic connection and prophetic overtones of, of what is going on and what is being said. So here you have Zechariah talking about this, this earthquake. So now we find out in verse 1 that Amos now, he's two years before this earthquake that is referenced in Zechariah chapter 14. Also, that gets with the sights and sounds. We, we've, uh, we've had mild tremors here. Do you guys remember that one when we were in Milford? And, yeah. and, and I'm sitting there downstairs. I think it was a Sunday morning. And I hear this loud crack. I said, what was that? I thought a tree fell on the house. And you know, I went outside to see if a tree fell on the house. Well, it was a crack. It was a minor earthquake. It was, remember, we were, then there was the one we were standing in here when we were up here. And, and the house is going, what in the world is going on? Stuff like that gets your attention. And God uses the physical world around us to, to speak to us. And, it, and, and that's why it goes on here. He says, I withhold rain from one city. I give rain to another city. 
And then one city then goes to the other city to get water because they don't have enough water. They go over here and they say, no, wait, go, don't take our water. God uses these physical elements to get our attention, which I, I think is, to me, which is very fascinating. All right, so that's the setting. He was a, just, he was a breeder, he was a rancher, farmer, average guy, didn't go to seminary. The kings, this is a very prosperous time. But there's going to be a, 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 something to pinpoint. Everybody will remember where they were, where this earthquake was, just like we remember where we were and what happened when we had our little crack in the ground happen around here. All right, now, the sound, verse 2. And he said, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherd shall mourn and the top of Carmel shall wither. Now, I, I, I won't bore you with, with all my study that I did into this. So the way I can get you to, to possibly picture this, you know, I think, have you ever seen a cartoon where a, roar, a lion roars and the roar goes out and it spreads throughout the jungle and sometimes it'll flatten trees and all the animals run away? It's the idea of a shock wave. If you've seen uh, the bomb, when they tested the bomb before Hiroshima and it lands and then it goes, or if you've ever seen sci-fi movies where this humongous explosion happened and then just everything all around from, from, from that focal point around it is just flattened from the shock wave. Well, it's, it's, there's no, it's not insignificant that it says the Lord will roar. And then it talks about these Gentile nations that are going to be affected by this roar in even Judah and Israel. So it, and, and, it's, and the epicenter is going to be, and it will be in the future, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be the epicenter. It's going to be where the shock wave emanates. So God here, Amos is telling us, is going to roar. Can you, go? you have to see it that way. And, and God doesn't do this with, without purpose. So there's going to be this shockwave. This roar is going to be from him, and the epicenter is going to be Jerusalem, Zion. And it's going to expand just like now he goes from verse uh, 4, where are we? Yeah, verse uh, verse 3, it starts with three transgressions, then he hits Damascus and all these nations, get into chapter 2 and 4. And, and this is just now spreading to all these uh, nations that are surrounding. It's all surrounding Israel. Everyone that is mentioned, is, is, uh, they all surround Israel. Now, what you have to imagine is something like this. You're, you're at the service, and the preacher's ripping and snorting, and he's just preaching about everybody else and the sins of America and the sins of the leadership, and that state just did this, and that state did this. And, and every, it just seems like everybody all around you, by the preacher's standards, is going to hell in a handbasket. But then he brings a sermon down to and you, and you, and you sitting in the audience, and he starts preaching to those that all of a sudden the whole time thought they were off the hook. But now it gets narrowed down to them. Well, this is what's happening here. And I've read this from several commentators. They said, more or less, you have to picture what's happening here. Amos is saying this stuff. The time they're living in, they're very smug, affluent, uh, 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 living in luxury. They're, they're, they're very secure. And now, 
Amos starts off and he, and he just starts pointing a gun at all the nations that are around them, surrounding them, how bad they are. And for three sins and for four, God's just going to obliterate them. Yay, yay. You can hear the clapping. And then he gets to Judah. And then he gets to Israel. And God then just deals with his people in the remainder of the book. Sometimes I think we as God's people are just, somehow we think we're, we're not part of that. We're not like them. You know, we're God's people. And of course we're good. And of course we're right. And of course we're holy. And of course we're living like we should be. Just look around. Put my life against anything. Not me personally, but we think, you know, well, look at all around us. They're going to hell and they're wicked and evil and all this stuff. And, and you know, without necessarily doing it, we have, an, a, a, I think, an improper image of our own holiness and sinlessness. And so God works his way through this. And they're, they're in the stands cheering. You know, yeah, God, go. And then Judah. Well, and it gets quiet. And then he says, and you know what? The problem is, you guys forsook my Torah, my law. And then it just goes on from there. So we have this roar from God. This paralyzing roar from God. And it spreads and spreads and spreads. And Jerusalem is ground zero. And then you have the aftermath in verse 2. I mean, it's going to spread from Jerusalem. The habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, probably more down in the southern area, to the top of Carmel. You know, the, the pasture lands for the shepherds up into the lush area of Carmel. Nothing is going to be immune. So, so that's basically the sin. God is starting to enumerate uh, the problem with the sin. Now, I want to read um, uh, uh, the sound. I'm sorry. That, that, I keep saying sound of sin. That, that's the sound. Um, so now I want to get into the sin. All right. Now, the sin, which is pretty much everything that I just said, it, it, it starts with the nations, which are surrounding Israel, and then it spreads to Israel and Judah. All right. And I, so I'm, I'm all over the place. But we've had the setting, the sound, now the sin. Now, the Bible knowledge commentary um, on verse 3, I found interesting because verse 3, it says, Thus saith the Lord. This, this expression here for three transgressions, of, and he uses it for everybody else. And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. This, this, this thing of for three transgressions and for four. Um, I, I just thought they had a good note. And so again, this is a Bible knowledge commentary. I've used it lately because just I'm finding some of the stuff is good. And let me, if you can just hang with me while I read this because it's so good. I can't come up with this stuff on my own and I can't claim credit for me, and I couldn't say that it is mine, I couldn't say it good enough. So just, just try to not zone out, okay? So the general, verse 3, the general, general declaration of irre, irrevocable judgment occurs through the repeated phrase, for three sins of, dot, 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 even four, I will not uh, turn back my wrath. The, this was good. The use of a number followed by the next higher number, is frequent in the Old Testament. Usually the higher number is enumerated in detail with special 
emphasis given the final item. Here, Amos cited only the last of the crimes, the one which had finally gone beyond God's patience. Then this fellow, Mir Weiss, argues that the phrase could be translated for three sins of dot, 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 even for four, as a poetic way of expressing the number seven, a clearly typological number which symbolizes completeness. I thought that was good, because I'm, what's for three and four? <laughs> okay, you know, what's, what's going on here? So, so it's an idea that it's, it's totality, it's complete. God has finally reached the breaking point, and, and it's over. We're done. We're, nothing is left. All right, so if this is correct, it means irrevocable judgment was pronounced on each nation for its full and complete sin. In the case of the surrounding nations, only the final and culminating sin was named. But for Israel, the complete list of seven was given. Israel's panic would likewise be sevenfold in the day God judged them. And they give references for that. All right, now this was good. The cause of judgment for each nation was its transgressions. Is, is the word that uh, they say sin, but it's transgression in our translation. It, so, the cause of judgment for each nation was its sins. That is, it, it, its covenant violations. The word for transgression, pasah, means rebellion or revolt, in which, this is good, and was used in secular treaties to describe a vassal's disobedience of the terms of a covenant. The Old Testament prophets also used the noun Pesah, or the word Pesah, in denouncing Israel's rebellion against God's covenant with her. Now, hang with me. Amos specifically viewed the sins of Judah and Israel as violations of the Mosaic covenant. She had failed to observe the terms of God's law. But not only, and this was really good, but not only Israel had sinned against the covenant, against a covenant with God. The Gentile nations also were guilty of Pesah, rebellion against a divinely established and universally recognized agreement. Apparently, Amos had in mind their rebellion against God's universal covenant with humanity made at the time of Noah. In exchange for God's suzerain promise, never again to destroy the earth with a flood, the vassal peoples were to refrain from shedding blood because, uh, because shedding blood dis disregarded for human life was an assault on God's own image. Human, so then it enumerates human life, rather than being uh, destroyed or curtailed, was to multiply and increase on the earth. The mutual agreement whereby God would preserve the earth and, and people would honor and extend human life was called an everlasting covenant. So is, this is good, right? So... This is a covenant Amos charged that the na Gentile nations had rebelled against. And then he enumerates. And, and I put here years ago, I think, America. Um, so, uh, by their, so now enumerate, they enumerate. By their acts of barbarism, their wholesale deportations of, of, of slave populations, their unnatural and stubborn hatreds, they have verses for all this, their sickening atrocities, and their desecration of the dead, they had broken the covenant that, that forbade such inhuman acts. Because of these sins, the earth's sovereign Lord declared, I will not turn back my wrath. <sighs> Similarly, in Isaiah, 
Uh, Isaiah said that God would bring a curse of drought to punish people. And, and, and oh, well, I'll just read this thing. I'm this last sentence. Uh, uh, would bring a curse of drought to punish the people of the earth because they had broken the everlasting covenant by shedding blood. As the New Testament confirms, uh, though the Gentiles, I don't know if I completely agree with this, but just get where they're coming from. As the New Testament confirms, though Gentiles may not receive the spoken or written laws, like back in this period, the requirements of human decency are nevertheless known to them in their own conscious uh, accusing, uh, in their own uh, conscious accusing them that they violate God's standards. Well, anyway, was that good or not? I mean, is that right on? It seems pretty much right on. And so... So how can God judge the nations? Sure, you know, those, those stupid Jews, they broke the covenant with God. No, no. The whole world is guilty of breaking the covenant through, if they're correct, and I've not looked in it, it's the first time I read it, this, this Noahic covenant. The whole world is guilty before God. Because God, if nothing else, if they don't want to see it here, God, we're told that... You know, that the, the Torah of God is written, the law of God is written in their conscience, right? I mean, Paul talks about. So anyway, I, I just thought that was important to bring in because, this, you know, why is he just bombasting these heathen nations? You know, aren't they just heathen nations? And then why lump Judah and Israel in this whole kit and caboodle here? Well, it's all a covenant violation. God set standards in his word. And when a people, a nation violate that, and when it becomes, and through three transgressions and for four, and I was going to preach on this. I, I don't, I, oh yeah. So, you know, the tail end, oh, I have so much to say. If you were to go like through chapter four, and he talks about how, you know, I reached out to you, but you didn't return to me. And then this happened, I, you know, the rain, no rain. And God acts, and God acts, and God's acts. The last one that he says is, as he's saying, yeah, you didn't return unto me, saith the Lord, 4.11. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye are as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, and ye've not returned unto me. There's no more illustrations like as progresses through chapter 4. This is the last one. There comes a point in time when God reaches that time, and that's when he's going to come back prophetically and just, Act as judge, and Yeshua is going to come back, and, and he's going to rule and reign. But there comes a point, and it seems to me that when you go through God's word, this, this pretty much the state of the condition that our country is in, it's ripe for, for three transgressions and four no more. I think we're kind of there. Am I going too fast? Am I losing anybody? All right. All right, so... Wow, well, I'm at my last point now, and I didn't even know it. Um, oh, so anyway, so, oh yeah, so I, I, something that I did forget. So it, the lion roars. I, I wanted us to see uh, how this connects uh, with prophetic passages. So uh, let's see, Joel chapter 3, which is, you're right there anyway, if you're in chapter 1 of Amos. So Joel chapter 3, I, I just want you to see this idea of roaring, how it's connected with end times. So, so 3, 14 through 17 of Joel. So 3, 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, the shock wave. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. 
but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know, and this hasn't happened yet, that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no more strangers pass through. But that idea of God roaring with the prophetic overtones here. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, yeah, let's see. Uh, let me find a note. Henry Morris, the, the creation guy that we're all familiar with, he has a study Bible, and he had a pretty good note on Joel 3.16, if I can actually pull it up here. Yeah, roar out of Zion. He says, the Lord, and we won't look at it, but I didn't make this connection. I thought it was great. The Lord is, quote, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5, and his powerful coming will be to the nations like the triumphant roar of a mighty lion, lion shaking the very heavens. <laughs> I never thought of it that way. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And Morse, you know, if I make connections like this in my head, it's like, oh, Warren, who do you think you are? He makes this awesome connection. The Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and his powerful coming will be to the nations like the triumphant roar of a mighty lion. So I, I thought that was good. Um, and see, do I have any more connected to that before I forget it? No. Okay. All right, so. So, so anyway, so that's the setting. Herdsman King earthquake, the sound, the roar, the shock wave. It's a paralyzing roar. Jerusalem's ground zero. The aftermath is going to be mourning and withering. Well, what's, what's the issue? The sin, you know, the nations all around that are surrounding Israel. But he doesn't, he doesn't uh, let Judah and Israel off the hook. And the lion's going to roar and affect all of it. All right, now, well, what's the solution? I mean, it's the same as always. Past. The present that the prophets are writing in, the near future, and the distant future. It's always the same. It's always the same for God's people. Now, what's the problem? Ultimately, for God's people, it's chapter 2, verse 4. And it's the only time that the word for Torah is used in Amos. Just once. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because... They have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. Like father, like son, like past generation, present generation, probably future generation. Why is it that we drift so far away, every generation of God's people? There are constantly... Reset button periods. And if I ever get my blog up about Billy Sunday, you know, the time frame in which he lived in America, from he was born during the Civil War, he died during the Great Depression. That whole area, and then the late 1800s, when we had the great missionary movement, that was like God hitting sort of like the, the, the reset button. God, I mean, Jonathan Edwards, the revivals in New England where just whole towns and peoples and nations and countries were touched by God. I mean, if you just look at our nation and where it is now. And then there's reviving amongst God's people. You know, you bring in Moody and Spurgeon and Billy Sunday. Yes, a lot of people got saved, 
But a lot of God's people really got right with God. They, they, they could see where they had strayed and fallen. And every time, whether it's to the lost to get saved or God's people to come back, there is a renewed emphasis and reception in relation to the Word of God. It's the Word of God every time that starts that movement of God, whether it's to reach the lost in Bunga Bunga Land or to get a hold of the lost in New England and the Christians in, 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 in the, that make up the churches. But what happens? It tells us in, our, in, in what I just read, wherever I just read it, <laughs> their lies cause them to err after the which their fathers have walked. We're not arresting the decline that proceeds into the next generation. And I know I, if I were in a room with a bunch of Christians right now, I would just be slammed with a bunch of cream pies, apples, oranges, and whatever rotten food could be thrown. Because how dare I say what I'm saying? Because the church is in a healthy, good condition today. And I'm saying it's not. And I don't believe it is. I believe there are good churches. I don't know that I found a good messianic place yet. But I believe there are still good churches that are holding the line. But they're becoming the exception. Not the rule. It used to be the rule was... You had as Christian in Houston here, their pastor and their church, whatever I forget the name of it, Bill, their, their pastor, who every time I mention his name, I cry because I admire that the fact that there are guys purposely and intentionally trying to hold the line when it's completely stretching all around us. And when God's people's condition matches the condition of the lost world, Oh, gosh, it's time for God to happen. So, so what's the solution? <laughs> you know, what am I trying to say? All right. So the solution is a return to Torah and, or slash law or slash God's word. I, I don't want to parse terms here, and I'm not going to make this a hurrah section for the Torah people. It has to be a return to what I'm calling submission, and you flesh this out however you do, submission to the totality of God's word. We cannot pick and choose. We can't just focus on those passages we like. We can't stay stuck in the New Testament because, well, that's just that. We can't stay, stay just in the Old Testament because, oh, gosh, that's been so ignored and we're going to beat everybody over the head with that. It's the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. I've always said this. It's technically not right, but the whole thing is Torah. Label it differently. The divine, inspired words of God. All of it. The fun thing for me has been, you know, you can read a book once or twice, you pro probably pretty much plumb the depths. You never plumb the depths of God's word. Where Whatever Christian Hebraic mindset you come at the word of God, you're Christian, you don't know it all. You're Messianic, you don't know it all. Put both ass, I dig into this book. Because it's the only thing that is going to restore it all. So we have to return to God's word, the word made flesh, the written word, which is submission to the 
totality of God's word, which, and then I just, these thoughts kind of just came. Meaning what? Meaning that, number one. Meaning that it is the word of God. I mean, we're still arguing about what is and isn't the word of God, as primarily in the Messianic world. But, you know, is it, but it have, is what part of the Christian? I mean, now you have the ESV being printed with the, with the Apocrypha in it. And because of the wide acceptance the ESV has had, now the Catholics put out the ESV with the Apocrypha, which is not being disingenuous because nobody tells us that the Westcott Hort manuscripts and all that crap has, if you were to see it, the, the, the Apocrypha is all interwoven into all of that. Well, nobody tells us that. I didn't know that. So now the ESV, which is just a, a revision of the RSV, which is the next greatest and latest because the new, new American Standard had been all that. Now it's been dethroned. Now you have all this stuff, and we're still arguing amongst the Messianics and among God's people, what is the Word of God, which has been settled a long time. No, Enoch is not a part of the Word of God, Messianic people, and we're leaving in Hebrews. And for the Christian people now, no, the Apocrypha is not a part of the Word of God. Gosh, am I speaking only to myself here? This is supposed to be settled. But old Satan, yea, hath God said. I mean, we can't, the solutions return to the Word of God, but we don't even know what it is. And on top of that, our, our scholars tell us you can't find it anywhere anyway, really. Because, wow, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we don't know where they come from. There's no providence. There's no chain of, of, of ownership there. Well, what if more scrolls are found somewhere in some obscure place and we don't have any chain of ownership? It doesn't ever end. I'm, I'm, I'm ranting here. What is the Word of God? Do we have the Word of God anywhere? <laughs> you know, you know, somebody said, God, God can maintain the universe but he can't maintain a book. God says when you die, you're going to heaven, but he can't maintain his word. And it's still in flux. The Nestle's Unger, what are we in, the 16th, 17th edition? Is there no end? Anyway. All right, so, so solution, return, submission to the totality of God's word. First of all, figure out what is the word of God. Second, submission to the totality of God's word. That is, it has to permeate every aspect of our lives. We have to let it permeate every aspect of our lives because if we don't, we turn into the people God is just pretty mad at right now in chapter 1 through 2, verse whatever I read through, 8. Number three, submission to the totality of God's word means that in the end, not end of time, but in the end, as we're, we're ruminating over all this, that, that in the end, it will win out over whatever we think or whatever we may want. That is so important because we have to, everybody, I come to the Word of God every morning taking off my Christian and Messianic glasses. There's, there's no perspective I'm coming from. Because if I come with a Messianic perspective, then all of a sudden, and it started to happen, just like it did in the, in, with my Christian glasses on, you, you, you see from the Christian perspective, you see from the Messianic perspective, but in the Christian perspective, you kind of gloss over those kind of questionable verses, and, and, and you don't even see the stuff that's like in between. Oh, yes, the Torah is bad, but Paul says the Torah is good. Or, 
uh, I don't know, I don't mean to pick on that, but I can't think of anything right now. But to come to God's Word taken off those perspectives, we have to do that. Otherwise, we're only going to see whatever it is we want to see, and we'll only allow it to control whatever parts of our life we want it to control. You know, you read the patent, Luke brought this up, or Mayor Lee, the missionary patent, George Patton, is that his name, George, that went to the New Hebrides, but, but it, was, it was different then. <clears throat> Christians still observed Sabbath, quote-unquote Sabbath, which meant, I got a point here, which convicted me when I read it, and it still convicts me, which to them was Sunday, but they still labeled it Sabbath. Spurgeon labeled it Sabbath. Moody Spur, uh, labeled it Sabbath. These, these guys called Sunday Sabbath. All right, I'm not arguing today here. I'm arguing the concept of Sabbath. And so George Patton, going to these pagan who have been headhunters, idolaters, demon worship people, and he spent his whole life there. I'm reading along, tooling along in the book and thinking, boy, this is great stuff. And then he gets to where... He had taught the natives who had gotten saved to prepare all their food on Saturday because they should not be doing any kind of labor, physical exertion like that on the Sabbath, which was Sunday. I was so convicted by that. Just, I don't want to get into all that, but do, do you know where I'm going? Can you comprehend what I'm saying? We have to let the Word of God permeate every aspect of our life, whether we like it or want to hear it. And I would say to those that, I hope I'm still recording, whether you're Christian or Messianic, <laughs> don't get mad at me, Luke, and I don't necessarily, but if you want to worship the Lord on Sunday, please worship it like Moody and Spurgeon and George Patton didn't make it a real Sabbath, right? What has happened is we, we deviated from the, the Torah standards that these guys had to where now, we go shopping, we go, we do whatever we want, we, 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 we go out after church to eat. When I grew up, no churches ever did that. When I got saved, no Christian churches did that. Messianics now, praise God, we're celebrating Sukkot, we're on the cruise ship <laughs> on the Sabbath. Praise God, we're not working, we're not cooking, but we got our Goyen doing it for us. And we're still, yes, you know, what is wrong here? We're not allowing, we're, we're, the Messianics are so now screwed up, screwed in with their Messianic perspective, it's deviated to where let's take a cruise for Sukkot. The Christians, and I'm preaching to myself, through our perspective, now we, everything goes on Sunday. You can do whatever you want on Sunday. It's not the Lord's Day anymore. You know, but yet we'll argue in this, this, this arena of, is it Saturday or Sunday? But the Bible says, on the Lord's day, John was in the spirit. Okay. Right? And I'm going to yell at us again. If it's the Lord's day, I, I, I argue let's do it like Pat and Moody Spurgeon. These guys, when they said it was a Sabbath, the guy who at Bob Jones that was the uh, expository preacher class guy that we took, where we, where we preached. He grew up, what was he, what was he, what was he? Uh, but it was Mr. Rupp, he became Dr. Rupp. And he was just sad at the deterioration. And he said, in his family, I don't know if he was Mennonite or whatever it was, I don't know where he came from. 
Even you could not read a newspaper. You couldn't read anything. Even the pictures on the wall, they turned uh, to, to face the wall. There were to be no distractions from the Lord's day. And you spent that together as a family. You spent it, and I'm preaching on myself, in the Word of God. No amusements. I told you in, in the book that Moody wrote about the Holy Spirit, how it just breathed his heart that on the Lord's day he saw how in the, his parishioners in the buggy and riding the horses on the Sabbath. If this hurts whoever's listening, and it hurts me for me, this is what I'm saying. Submission to the totality of God's Word. We have to pull the, the, the expanded boundaries back to what we say we believe. I don't care what camp you're in. That in the end, it will win out over whatever we think or whatever we may want. And we cannot justify or judge or conclude on how we will serve, live for God, worship Him in our time period because that's how it's done. That was the problem with these people. Everything's fine. This is how it's done. Leave us alone, Amos. The last one. Submission to the totality of God's word means, and, and, I, and I came up with this, all, oh, they're all on my own, but I like this one. <laughs> I don't know why I like it. Because, oh, because of the covenant. And, and, and I got thinking of, of the marriage covenant and, and kind of what that picture. So submission to the totality of God's word, meaning that, meaning that forsaking all else, we will cleave to it only, the Word of God. It, for, just like the marriage vow, forsaking all others, cleaving only to one another. That's not exactly how it goes, but that's kind of how it goes, right? All right. <laughs> they despised the Torah. It got so bad. These are the people that God came down from heaven and burned the mountaintops and probably there was volcanic flowing and it was spewing and there's fire and heat and all this stuff and the ashes coming down, God's speaking and he gives the Torah to now they're despising it. Right? Can, is anybody feeling this with me? I feel it in my own life. Well, what happened? They forsook their covenant with God. And instead of cleaving to him and his word only, they're cleaving to, let's build a calf. Hey, this is a good idea. And we'll put gold on it. And, and we will do it unto God. And besides that, Aaron's on board. <laughs> How does it happen? That is a microscopic picture of how it declines in a brief moment of time. And why? Because Yeshua has to go back. Moses is still up there. We don't even know if he's alive. We need plan B. Let's do what we're used to. <laughs> you know? Long time since Yeshua's coming. Each generation kind of... And the thing is, I know people are just going to say I'm crazy. Time capsule... To me, time... For me, time revolves in this rotating circle in which it's the same thing happened all over again, just further down the timeline, gradually expanding. So every generation is this circular thing in which everything is revolving, but expanding. So what I'm saying is 
we need to, to, to this, this expanded, revolving, every period of God's people's existence, we need to go backwards. And, and, and we need to shrink how our lives are, what our standards are like. Me include, I'm preaching to the choir. It's part of the reason I had to get out of the ministry because I, I have to get my own act together. We preach right truth, but anyway. So, so for me, I'm trying to narrow this, this world circle that keeps passing, of God's people, that just keeps going from generation to generation. It just goes bigger and bigger and bigger. Worse and worse and worse. I'm trying to shrink it back to something that I can relate to in time and in history. I, and that's why I've told you, that's why it, to the kings it says, as David his father, as David his father. Well, we're hundreds of years down the line, but this king, this guy is trying to pattern his life, and is, God's calling back to, and he's calling the people back to David our father as a focal point. Then that's the, that's the job of every generational preacher, and that's the job of every parent to keep that connection. The Indians do it, and we praise them, the Native Americans. The Indians do that. And we think that's marvelous. The Jewish people keep the heritage, and, and, and every other people do. I have a heritage that I can identify with, and I'm trying to work back to that. I, I'm forgetting labels. I don't care. Christianity and the Messianic movement does not hold a candle to the time frame in which God was working, and I think it was the last time, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, before these guys started trickling off the scene because of what we wanted as a nation. You know, you read my blog, blew me away. What, 1916, 1970? Uh, I'm talking off of my head here when I get the blog out, you'll see. But, you know, we're, 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 Billy Sunday had, uh, what, I think 10 days of, of revival meetings in Boston. A million and a half people show up. <laughs> and it's estimated that he reached over 300 million in his lifetime. He's an American guy here. It's not like a Whitfield over there. And we don't even know who the guy is. You know, we can go back to um, Jonathan Edwards in New England history. What's happening to us folks? I don't know. But I think there's hope. Oh, I, I haven't ended on the positive. I, th I do think there is hope. Um, we just can come back to God's word. I don't think we have to live under the fear and threat of the world's going to hell in the handbasket. We don't have to live under the threat of, you know, the Lord's going to roar. And it doesn't have, we don't have to live under the threat of doom and gloom preachers. The point is, let's use it all to keep us drawn back to the Word of God, because that is what's going to keep us right with God, that's going to prepare His people, so when He does roar from Zion, that remnant will be prepared. And that's what I see our, our role is, Christian and Messianic alike. We have to pass down to our kids, you guys, that, that are popping out babies, and, and Christian and Houston that, that will probably adopt. We, we have to, we have, I was talking with Houston, I was telling Houston, he needs to go back and talk to Papa his grandfather, because I talked with him. And, and we know Tory and, and Sankey and, and, and these guys. And, and he, he lived in that time frame when these guys were popular. And, and I can never remember the guy that built the heavy bulldozer equipment that gave 90%. Um, let, 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 yes, RJ or something, Letourneau. You know, 
Houston has, whether he'll do this or not, and he's probably already have, I'm just using him because he happens to be here, and I thought of him, we talked about it yesterday, has to go back to his papa. We, we have to go back to our roots. We, we, we have to talk with these people before they die. That's why, you know, for me to talk with papa, I felt so privileged because he's older than I am. He's in his 80s. He's, what, 20 years older than I am. But he was my connection to that era. Never talked with anybody from that era that knew some of this, the, 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 the drippings from that generation to keep it alive. And, and he, how many knows of him, breathed back, breathed back into me this that I'm pursuing now. It caused me to think, well, yeah, what are these guys? I, for, I forgot about these guys. You know, I, I, I used to emphasize them early on in my ministry. Over the years, I, I forgot about them, and they dropped by the wayside. And, and shame on me for not keeping these men alive because we need to, as our father David. Now, I don't want to stop there. I'm just trying to give you a mental picture to where this is where I'm going to help me latch on to a point. Okay, well, why were these guys like they were? What was it that produced men like Moody and Spurgeon? If you read Spurgeon, he had this humongous library that went back to the 1600s and some before. Why you have to read about Spurgeon? Read Spurgeon. Why was Spurgeon why he was? He looked to the older guys he gleaned from them that were alive and in his studies. Well, where, why was Matthew Henry who he was and John Gill? Well, it was this chain of knowledge that was passed on and passed on and passed on. And there's always been a remnant in Christianity that's been calling them back. There are the bills that are out there calling us back. There are. There's this call back. Am I going too long? I know I am. Because Torrance over there, or uh, um, Gideon's yawning his head off. I can't help it. I'm sorry. All right, is it time to end? All right, I think it's time to end. So the Lord will roar. And one day, folks, he's going to roar. And I want my sons, because I'll be gone probably, I want my grandchildren and daughters, and I want my grandchildren, if their parents are gone, we have to pass this down to where we know what it is we believe and we're willing to Stand out and be different if we have to be. We need some Amoses. We need some Ezekiels. We need some Moody's and Spurgeons and Pattons and Jonathan Edwards and Mueller's. I wish I could point to somebody in Messianic Movement. I can't really think of anybody. I'm sure they're there, but you know. You know what I'm saying. So the challenges to me, the challenges to you. I wanted to find, I have this song by uh, the Chigger Hill Boys and Terry. It's time to get back to the Word of God. They're, they're, it's a wonderful Christian bluegrass group from down south. I love them. And it, it is time to get back to the Word of God. And, and they were call, and issuing a call to get back to the Word of God. And, and Anyway. So that's where I'm ending with this, is a call to get back to the Word of God. And, and that's what I'm hoping will happen. You know, the Lord, the, the Lord's going to roar. It's not going to, you know, I, I want to say it this way. It won't scare those of God's people that are prepared. And I want to believe God's people won't be scared, but He's going to roar one day. 
and we need to be prepared that are going to hear that, uh, be prepared to now be instructing those that will. So I better end. All right. Amen. Here we go. Father, I just pray that you'll make it live. This is another one of those messages I just always feel is an intertwined, conglomerated mess. But as I've gone back and listened, I found out that's not necessarily the case. So Father, I, I just have these things that are burning in my heart, and, and I know at times I'm speaking to a mixed audience, and, and, and then there's me with my perspective. But I'm not apologizing for that. I, I think, Father, that I, ah, I'm nobody great, but I, I have to believe that ah, I see things that are in the Word. Nothing new, nothing fancy, but just like what's there. And, and I, I have to believe that I'm playing a small role and others like me in it, where you know, our understanding will be open in relation to what baffled Daniel's generation. And, and it just seemed you promised that as end times progress, that understanding is going to be opened up to see some stuff. I mean, my generation of preachers, Father, you know, I never heard anything. We, nobody preached from the mind of prophets. You know, but now I, I'm so encouraged to see in the Christian world, in the Messianic world, that there is this, 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 it seems to me, this renewed emphasis or this beginning to see in these minor prophets that they're speaking about where we are now. And, and, and if what they're saying is for us now, we're probably pretty much God-like in the same shape as a people, your people were when Amos preached and, and all these others, and it's a warning to us, Paul said, these things were written for our admonition and learning. And I'm just trying to admonish because I, I feel I've wasted so much time. and I mean, been saved 45 years. What do I have to show for that? Realizing I'm getting older and time is winding down. There just seems to be this feel in the air that Yeshua is coming. Ah. <sighs> And Father, um, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm saying. So Father, I just pray that you'll just finish this and do with it as you see fit. In Yeshua's name, amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does Of your grace and zeal, oh, oh, zeal.